Okay, so none of us are professionally perfect, but maybe that very fact is the key to attracting more customers and clients, right? Our guest today is an award-winning sales leader and author who will explain why it's better for your business to not have perfect five-star ratings. They'll also explain how you can prosper in this rate and review world. It's Todd Capone, author of The Transparency Sale on the Manager Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most word of mouth. That means more growth in revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. On this program, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. One, the message itself, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Two, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And three, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into a competitive advantage. My new book is launching this fall from Career Press. It's called The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. I'll keep you posted on all of that, and we'll have samples and bonus content available soon. Simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. So how did I first connect with today's guest? Well, before I began this podcast, I was an avid podcast listener, and still am. One of my favorites is the Marketing Book Podcast, whose host, Douglas Burdett, was our guest on episode 18. And that's where I first heard our guest today and his counterintuitive yet very interesting and powerful message, one which cuts across marketing and sales. Todd Capone is an award-winning sales leader, a self-described nerd for sales methodology and decision science, and the author of The Transparency Sale. Todd is the former chief revenue officer of Power Reviews, which during his tenure there was the fastest growing tech company in Chicago. He has held leadership roles with three other tech companies, including Exact Target, where he helped lead the company to a successful IPO and eventually an acquisition by Salesforce.com, which was one of those like billion plus things. Todd and his wife have two children and a variety of pets. He can also, it says here, both ride a unicycle and juggle. Too bad we're audio only here on the podcast, but Todd Capone, a welcome uh, to our group of message managers. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. I appreciate being on. We often speak here on the podcast about what neuroscience is helping us understand about persuasion and buyer behavior. Sometimes, Todd, and I'm sure you're finding as well, science offers explanations that wind up being counter to common practice or common intuition. And one of these that we can talk about today is the role of online reviews and ratings. So no big surprise, something like 95% of consumers look at reviews in most purchase situations. Y'all might be surprised that four out of five consumers actively look for negative reviews, which is part of our risk aversion. 
But here's what might really surprise you, and it was a little surprising to me as well. Purchase likelihood is highest if your average rating is between 4.2 and 4.5 stars on the familiar five-star scale. So Todd, at the point we're recording this episode, this podcast has nothing but five-star reviews. There's a danger here. I don't want any of our listeners to think they're doing me some big favor by leaving a less than five-star review, not because of my ego, but because I'm afraid of the iTunes robots. But you say most companies should worry less about all that. Your central thesis is that transparency sells better than perfection. So how did you come to that conclusion? Well, yeah, as the chief revenue officer of Power Reviews, so that name might give you a hint as to what they did, but we helped retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on their websites. So when you're on Crocs.com or Vineyard Vines or Jet or any of those companies and you're looking at their product on the product page and you look off to the bottom or the right and see the reviews, it was Power Reviews that was really arming that. And so to your point, really the 4.2 to 4.5 is about authenticity. I think your concern about artificially deflating your review score because it helps, it's all about authenticity. So artificially inflating or deflating is a bad thing. But as you said, we did this research study and found that consumers are most likely to convert or purchase a product when that review score is between that 4.2 to 4.5. Now, Part of being a sales leader, and my experience is primarily in B2B, is that the way that consumers interact with products that they're buying online, where the website is acting as the salesperson, is indicative of how consumers like to buy anything, regardless if they're talking to a human being or they're looking at it on a website. And that's where this all really started, is if imperfect works, where a negative review, let's say you're on Crocs and you're looking at a pair of their shoes and they're displaying negative feedback on their own shoes on their own site, like you would think that would be crazy. But that's what's validating all of the reviews and all of the content and helping a consumer make a less risk averse, a more certain purchase. And that's where it all started. I started, to, as you mentioned, I'm kind of a nerd for this stuff. So I started to look at the neuroscience behind it. I started to experiment on the B2B side and found that the results were magic. Like when you lead with that level of transparency and embrace your flaws and be a human, authentic, honest person in your sales, you're not actually risking anything. You're maximizing your results. If you're talking about, as you advise others to often lead with your flaws, so is that a sense of early on, for example, let's say in the B2B world, of saying, you know, our solution or our technology isn't for everyone? Or if you don't have someone dedicated at your say, it may not go well. Or maybe there was a prior version that had an issue, but we were able to fix it. Here's what we did. Are you talking about that sort of thing, laying out the groundwork for? where it might disappoint or where we have solved problems before? Well, yeah. I mean, to your point about the fact that four out of five consumers, the first thing they look for is the negative reviews. I think the stat, the last one I saw was it's between 82 and 86% of consumers are specifically seeking that out. So let's think about that consumer behavior. What are we doing? What we're trying to do is qualify out whether or not a product or a service is applicable to what we're interested in. 
And we're trying to get to those facts quickly. In a B2B world, I think it serves the same purpose. And what I've found in just experimenting with it, combined with some of the brain science around it, is when we lead with that elephant, hey, listen, here's what you're not going to get and what we're not going to be good at so that we can be really great at the stuff that really brought you to us. That's where we find that, you know, let's say that you're looking out your window and you see two people really well-dressed with a clipboard walking up your driveway. You probably close the drapes and run into the basement like the government's coming <laughs> to take your provisions, right? It's like we're wired to resist that influence. And when a salesperson or anybody that is trying to influence somebody else leads with that level of authenticity, and listen, before we get too deep into this, here's a couple of things we're not going to be great at. If those are going to be super important, let's just save everybody some time here. And what I've found is it's incredibly disarming. And then when we're ready to deliver our message of positivity and what we're really good at, it seems to land a lot more effectively when we've already got the negatives out of the way. You mentioned neuroscience early on and what happens in our brains. And it's fascinating. The last few years, we have learned so much. There's still a long, long way to go, but we've learned so much about decision-making and brain function, awareness, influence, those areas in the last few years than for decades or centuries prior. Now, I'm not a neuroscientist. Todd, you're not either. Neither of us play one on TV, but I think we're both fond of looking at those studies and that research and applying what is being learned there to everyday sales marketing situations. So what have you learned when you were researching your book? Did you learn a bit about the mechanism, the structures, the processes that are producing this very effect that you're talking about? Yeah, I had to go to the one-on-one level. Like you're right. But the first neuroscience books I started to pick up, I literally, it was like I was reading a book in a different language. But so I had to start really simple. And then I ended up, here's a funny little side story. I'm from Chicago and I went and did a Google search trying to figure out, hey, where could I find a neuroscientist in Chicago so that I could take my understanding of some of these concepts, not only validate it, but see if there's a way that I could dumb this down a little bit so it could be at a consumable level. Turns out there's a whole like neuroscience community here in Chicago. I found a professor over at DePaul University. I was connected with him and he helped me through this process. But yeah, it started with just the simple functions of how the brain works, how it makes decisions. And then there was a number of things that I found, but there was a couple of neuroscientists that the way that they shared how things work made it so simple for me to start to categorize these different things. I'll give you one example. There's a whole school of thought that says that we as human beings make decisions solely using our limbic, which governs emotions and feelings. And then we use the neocortex, the kind of the logic center to back up those. So when we say we're buying something because it's got great features we're actually, we've got a feeling down deep. And so I started to dig into that and said, all right, feelings. Like I just associate feelings with love and hate and warmth. But there was a guy named Dr. David Rock that created something called the scarf model. And it categorizes the different feelings that drive decisions. And scarf stands for status. So like, how does this make me look to others? A certainty is the C. So 
the predictability, my ability to forecast what I'm getting myself into. The A is autonomy. So like, does this give me control or do I lose control? The R is relatedness, which is the group think, the group feel, and am I buying something that has a higher cause? And then F is fairness, is the investment in my time, my resources, my dollars worth what I believe the payoff to be? And that's where all of this started. I wrote Scarf on my whiteboard at work when I started listening to customers and the way that they framed the things that they're looking for, the decisions they've made to either join with us, choose a competitor, or leave us as a client. I was able to use that as a model to really dig into it. And it's really changed the way that I think about the way that people communicate their decisions. That's really interesting. Several levels there, Todd. One is your search for a neuroscientist. I presume there was not like a five-star rating service available for Chicago area uh, neuroscientists at the time. (laughs) You were able to find someone to help lead you through all of that. I've heard the process that you described as we tend to, even for whether it be a big household or personal buying decision or decision generally, or even in the B2B world where you have a number of people and you imagine a very logical process that they go through. But in reality, people make a decision. And as I heard it described, as our brains then begin to act as our press secretary. Yes. We rationalize the decision or the behavior that's already occurred. A common misbehavior with a lot of sellers, especially in the B2B world, in that they probably assume a, a logical, quantitative smooth, sequential process of decision-making that happens with the buyers. That's really not it. We're much more messy and emotion-driven as human beings. If you could talk a bit about that and then other, any other areas, when you look at the, especially the business-to-business professional selling world, what do you consider to be the most common errors either in the overall approach or just the way that, that people talk about and offer their solutions? Well, yeah, I think obviously we've hammered the one, which is don't hide your flaws. And part of that has to do with it actually disarms the buying brain and lets your positivity message resonate more effectively. But the other piece that is really shifting the whole world, like I call it kind of a non-obvious evolution that's happening, is the proliferation of reviews and feedback on everything we do by experience You're not going to go pick a restaurant without looking at reviews. You're not going to pick a hotel in a town without looking at them. And that is really oozing its way into the B2B world. So embracing your flaws not only helps the buyer make better, more confident decisions, but hiding your flaws and expecting to get away with it, that is quickly becoming a thing of the past. That's number one. Number two is what you just talked about with the the, uh, feelings and emotion versus logic. There's a a study that I found really funny that was done by Martin Lindstrom a number of years ago. And so this talks to the fact that we don't always make logical decisions. And that as human beings, when we hear something that seems intensely logical, our brain is doing something else. Martin Lindstrom had done a study where he brought 2,080 smokers into a lab and showed them a cigarette warning label and asked them what the cigarette warning label made them feel, what made them think. And in every case, the smoker said, gosh, I I really got to quit smoking. Then he put them into an fMRI machine, a functional MRI machine that actually can sense what's happening in the brain. 
showed them another cigarette warning label. And what he found almost across the board was that these individuals' craving centers would light up. In other words, the brain was subconsciously using that logical argument on a cigarette warning label, but the brain was saying, listen, I could really use a smoke right now. This, like, It reminded them right. that like, the cigarette was something that they craved. I know that's more of an addiction, but our brains are wired to take logic and make instant decisions. If we had to actively decide on every stimulus and everything that we did, like actively decide whether or not I should be breathing right now, we would crumble. We're pre-wired to speed different decision-making processes, and that's part of it. I had a, a neighbor who recently bought a Corvette, and he was a mid-40s guy. When I asked him, I met him at the bottom of the driveway and said, hey, what's this? And he explained to me how he needed better acceleration to get onto the expressway that his old car was not picking up. And then he explained how the local Chevy dealer that was selling the Corvette had this like 60 month, same as cash thing. Like there was no interest rate. So he's like, gosh, it just all lined up. And I'm like, dude, that's not why you bought the Corvette, right? You bought it because of this status thing, this feeling that you're trying to get, this relatedness, this trying to regain your energy and your youth and have this be represented in the car that you buy. That's the thing that, if Chevy just sold on the APR, like finance rate, and the acceleration capability, they would lose in the Corvette war. There's a Volkswagen Golf that's got better acceleration and costs less. As sellers, at marketers, we've got to be thinking about the feelings that we inspire. Otherwise, people are going to take logical messages and just polarize them. If you've got a preconceived notion going into a discussion and somebody logics all over you, whether it's for the way you're leaning or against, you will be stronger in your preconceived notion versus if you came in with a story and emotion. What they found in those fMRI studies is that stories and emotion and feelings, our brains actually work in lockstep together. In the new world of consensus buying, it's stories, feeling, and emotion that brings people together and your logic is actually polarizing audiences. And a lot of that if you think about the ways that someone who's a happy customer or happy client would describe you to one of their friends, it would be pretty specific. It would probably be around the feeling that they get in that Corvette, which was the kind of car that th that person wanted since he was 16 years old, or what it feels like on the open road, and et cetera. But if they're responding to a survey or something where there's a kind of socially acceptable right answer then it's going to come across very, very differently. How is it that someone would talk about your product or your service or your company or your cause to someone else that they cared about and starting adopting that language? And it would probably have a lot to do with easy visuals, metaphors, feelings, and stories, far more than acceleration or miles per gallon. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And to that point, when you asked about the mistakes we'd made, there's so many companies that I've worked with, I've worked for as a chief revenue officer. I had lots of people trying to sell to me all day long. And when I would listen to their presentations, they would, all of them, like I swear it was 99.9% .9 would lead with logic, would lead with the we, we, we. Every slide deck that I saw would start with the company's mission, like we believe in blah, blah, blah. Then the second slide would be their locations. And like, 
I don't care about your locations. And the third one would might be the awards that you've won. Like, hey, we were the best at this service in 2017. Like, all right, great. What happened in 2018? And the next slide is a NASCAR slide, which that's what they call the slide that has all the logos on it, like a NASCAR would. And we logic all over our audience at the time where they're probably paying attention. And then they go into a deep slumber just when you start to tell the story and teach them about how they can be better at what they do. We need to stop thinking that way. And we need to start thinking about like when we're going to go in and present and position, we could probably go on on this for 10 minutes. But the short version is I want listeners and sellers and marketers to start thinking like reality makeover TV shows do, where the person that these reality teams are going in to help realizes they have a problem. And the way these groups go in is they help that individual see that their problem is not only potentially worse than they thought it was, but it's more urgent that it needs to be fixed than they thought it was. And they do it in a way that is not only disarming, but it's educational. They inject emotion and feeling into their logic. And at the end, these individuals who the reality teams are there to help can't wait to run through a brick wall for those individuals. So if you think about Queer Eye or Restaurant Impossible or Biggest Loser, in each one of those, those individuals realize they've got a problem. If the host, like on Restaurant Impossible, Robert Irvine, comes in and shows the individual company or the restaurant that their problem isn't the economy, it isn't the competitive Italian restaurant down the street, it's the food quality, the service quality, it's dirt, you know, it's filthy, it's the experience that you're creating for people. And when he doubles down on that, those restaurateurs run through a brick wall for Robert Irvine. And that's what you're trying to do in your sales talks too. It's tell a story, not about how great you are, but about how great your participant, your customer can be and do it in a way that compels them to action. And that's the way we all should be thinking. You know, that's absolutely right, Todd. And I'll tell you in lots of cases in the companies I've worked with, and a lot of them also are business to business sellers. And we'll start with a lot of the materials and the presentations and the decks and voice of customer research, all of that that they have today. And we'll oftentimes kind of joke around about how the typical corporate deck, corporate presentation, the capabilities presentation, whatever you would call it, and it's in PowerPoint and slide one, again, is, is it's got the picture of the headquarters building. And then you get into the little locations and the revenue growth and the timeline and where Gustavus Adolphus Acme began back in 1898, et cetera, et cetera. And it's only about by slide nine or 10 that we even get into anything about the problems that we solve. And then there'll usually be some nervous laughter and someone says, oh, you must have seen our capabilities presentation. <laughs> no, it's just a, it's a common trap to fall into, I think, because people are comfortable in themselves and what they know and what they do, and they feel less comfortable in going into the customer's world. But that brings me to my next question, because you have experience as a chief revenue officer which is a relatively recent role and really breaks down, I think, a lot of those traditional boundaries between sales and marketing. And it would seem that all the things that we're talking about today require a very close interplay between sales and marketing. And salespeople, the really good ones, have a good, brief, concise feel for customers and stories 
and where marketing may have some information on case studies and product and voice of the customer, can't really have those boundaries anymore, right? So what is it that is required from our listeners or organizations, large or small, that would help them to be able to bring the stories and the information and even the flaws together to be more compelling? Yeah, that's such a great point. It's funny that when you think about 4-2 to 4-5, that's pretty tight. It's not that we don't want our salespeople to suddenly take this message and start walking into prospects and say, hey, this is why we suck. That's not what we're talking about. It requires the expertise and the collaboration with marketing. And where that begins is, first of all, marketing needs a realization that the content that they're putting out, there was just a study done by a company called Trust Radius that found that when buyers are looking at content that they use to make decisions, that the stuff that marketing puts out is actually the lowest rank in terms of trustworthiness. So obviously they're advertisements, but even case studies are falling to the bottom. What's moving to the top are those basically informal feedback mechanisms, the reviews, the talking to peers, the back channel references. So I think that first recognition is, listen, your customers, your prospects are talking about you. You better go find out what they're saying. And like in the tech world, there's companies like G2 Crowd and Trust Radius that now collect and display ratings and reviews for tech companies' products. But there's sites like Glassdoor that have become this amazing resource for your recruits, the people you're trying to hire, where employees and past employees are sharing feedback around what their experience has been like working in your organization. What you're finding is buyers are actually starting to look at Glassdoor reviews to understand all right, what's the culture like of this company that I'm going to be working with? All of these sites are out there. So I guess to sum that up, marketers need to A, go find out when a customer is going to go research you, what are they going to find? And then B is to start to take that content together and help create the messaging that sales is going to use that embraces those flaws up front, but very specifically positions your solutions as a 4-2 to 4-5. Sales needs marketing's help to go do this, and marketing needs to realize this new, what I call the feedback age that's happening, and start to prioritize not only helping to facilitate having your current customers share, but really understanding what they're saying, where they're saying it, so that they can pull that together and create that new messaging for sales. Todd, that's a great point, and I think it would counter what could be my ancient brain, um, channeling the ancient brains of some of our listeners, might take some of this and get a little anxious, more than a little anxious. They might think, well, in this digital rate and review age, what is the role of personal professional selling? Where do sellers fit in all of this? Do they become superfluous? You made a point in your book and in some of the discussions around that, that even in a world of WebMD, people still go to their doctors. And they need to go to their doctors because none of us are great at diagnosing ourselves and we're really not great at prescribing for ourselves. So it sounds like those sellers who understand this world will not only survive, but they'll really prosper, maybe in ways that they hadn't even imagined before. Well, yeah, if you think about the way that you build trust. So I'm not saying that if you lead with your flaws, you're 
customers are suddenly going to do less homework on their own. They're still going to do their homework. But what you're going to find is when it matches, then those buyers are going to see you as a seller as they're buying Sherpa. And like that's a term that I, I did not make up. But basically, that's the role of the seller is to provide all of the information to help the customer make a confident, well-informed decision. That's why Amazon's done pretty well and all of these other sites by creating a one place where you could go do all of your research. If you're gonna go buy something on Amazon, you don't have to go find five other sites and talk to five other buddies. They're providing all of the information for you right there. In the B2B space, that's the seller's new role is to understand what are all of these elements that a buyer needs to be able to make a confident, informed decision and then be that resource. And when they go do a little homework and find it matches, those buyers are going to feel less of a need to go do more homework. And that's what speeds sales cycles and increases win rates and helps you do better deals with your customers. That's this new world. Todd, one of my heroes when it comes to research and practice just all the things around it is Robert Cialdini, who wrote a book called Influence, which is now in its zillionth edition and has built an amazing name for himself in a body of research and practice. And one of the things that I admire about Dr. Cialdini is that he has explained in great detail and very practical ways the uh, shortcuts. He's a social psychologist and talks about that there are some easy mechanisms to be more influential using principles of social psychology. But he also has made it a point over the years to talk about the ethical uses of that. He said, I want you to take these things for companies and products and causes and people that are really good. And so I use that as an intro to you. I know are developing a brand new keynote, which you'll be giving soon, and I'm sure we'll be taking on the road. And for you, it's about taking what I understand, Todd, is taking some of the things we're learning from brain science and in a similar way saying, here's what you should learn and here are ways to use it for good, not for evil. So no, no twirling the tiny mustache there. So could you talk a little bit about that and those keys and those mechanisms? And when you think about doing this for good, using these things for good, what are you talking about? I think you've probably experienced this as an author too, that when you get going on something, everything you see starts to feed into, it almost becomes you've created this valley in your brain where all of this information goes. So it started as all about transparency and sales and like what we've been doing wrong and how to optimize that. But yeah, to your point, the speech is actually called how to use brain science for sales, good, not evil. So you nailed it. And it goes beyond just the sales techniques. And a lot of it has to do with the environment. There was a couple of other things that I've stumbled upon that I was like, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. Number one being this idea that people in open concept homes, like that became such a trend, are starting to recognize that there was a reason there were walls. And when you think about privacy and confidence and autonomy, those types of things, that's what we're trying to create with walls. Well, this open concept environment has really become all of the rage across any kind of organization. And in sales, it's crushing the sales brain. It's crushing their ability to be good prospectors. When you think about how you need to optimize your brain 
to be a good prospector where you're making a cold call, which creates anxiety by itself, subconsciously, if you think that people are listening to you and judging you, you will be less effective. And subconsciously, if you're trying to work and you're hearing other people have these conversations, but you can only hear half of the conversation, our brain is actually wired to try to predict what the other person's saying. So it's killing the people that are sitting on the floor and killing the callers. Like the open floor plan for sales is having negative effects and the brain science really backs that up. So that was one. The other one is I see lots of organizations that in their job descriptions are leading with the fact that they've got beer on tap and they've got ping pong tables and pop-it shots and all that junk. I can't remember the guy's name, but he just wrote a book called Thrive by Design. He called it perk inflation, that we're getting into this era that people, companies are trying to compete for employees based on the perks. And that's actually not going to work. Those perks are actually becoming entitlements. And now everybody's going to expect it. You're not going to win there. The way you win is to create environments that optimize for the way the brain works. I think that scarf model is one really good way to think about it. But those are a couple of the things that are not necessarily the commonly held beliefs. But I think that the world of open floor plans in sales is going to come to an end. I think people are going to come to this recognition and certainly trying to compete based on the perks that you provide as an organization that can't continue in the upward direction either. And uh, the brain science is there to back it up. And it certainly does pay to revisit those assumptions and the, the reason why decisions were made in the first place. I suspect, Todd, I don't know this, but a lot of the open floor plan thinking a while back was probably rooted in more cost efficiency and cost savings in terms of using physical space was probably rationalized in the hope that this would inspire more collaboration and teamwork. And again, what we're finding, as you alluded, is it's having just the opposite effect. Uh, people tend to hold the whole thing more closely. Yeah, I'll make a point there. One of the things that we're starting to see is obviously we've entered an era of environmentalism and lots of talks about the climate. Well, one of the things that I keep hearing about open concept homes and open concept offices is it costs a lot more. It takes a lot more energy to keep them cool or keep them warm. So there's also that party that's starting to say, hey, listen, this is not an effective way to work. And we're harming the environment. I think those two things over the next couple of years are going to come together where we're going to start this reality that, that this is actually not good for anybody. Todd, I will check one more assumption here. The last time that I checked the reviews for your book on Amazon, they were actually higher than optimal. You were well above 4.5, but I'm guessing that that's still okay. And this has been a fascinating conversation. If I could give you a 4.41 review on your book, then I, I would, but I, I don't think that's quite possible, but I would love if you could share here just a little bit of how can people learn more about you, the book, this new keynote and ideas for them to help sell more transparently? I do have a website. It's called transparencysale.com or you can go to toddcaponi.com. It's got information about the things that I talk about. I've been doing a lot of speaking and then a lot of training and workshops. How do you implement this idea of selling transparently? How do you uh, choreograph your presentations to tell a great story, but compel the listener to act? There's a third one that's 
really on fire. And it's this idea of transparent negotiating, where we've been teaching sellers to negotiate as though we're in a Texas Hold'em poker tournament, where we crush trust right at the goal line. And there's actually a way to embrace transparency that leads to more predictable deals and builds trust through the, the, uh, the goal line. That one's on fire. But those are two great resources. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn. I do share some of my nonsense there. That seems to get some good eyes on it too. So happy to connect with any of your listeners. And again, I really appreciate being on today. Todd Capone, we will have all of those links in our show description. Todd, really appreciate your time today. Did you do this interview on a unicycle? I did not. You would know if I did. I would be exhausted. I'm not quite as good as I used to be, but I did just break it out a few weeks ago. The kids certainly enjoyed it. (laughs) Impressive nonetheless. Todd, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you. That was a really interesting, enlightening conversation with Todd Capone. Certainly interesting, the overall theme about how transparency beats perfection. And I also took away that facts, figures, and even case studies are generally less persuasive than more informal feedback and stories. That's what we call the everyday conversations in and around your business. And it's just vital to approach those strategically if you want to stand out and if you want to grow. Hey, I'm very pleased that you joined the podcast, whether you are a returning message manager or if this is your first time in. We continue to build momentum, and that's because so many of you have been recommending us to friends and colleagues, and despite some of the things that we talked about with Todd, leaving those five-star ratings. If you haven't yet done so, please take just a few seconds to tap subscribe and offer your rating and review. That helps the robots let other professionals know about this podcast and be able to find it and get value from it. There's another free business messaging resource available to you, one that you can read, the Message Manager Memo. It comes to your email inbox each week. It's a brief read with something you can put to work right away. You can sign up on my website, jimcar.com. That's J-I-M-K-A-R-R-H dot com. And while you're there, you probably know of a professional association or a company full of people looking for ways to improve their professional conversations and to grow their business. On my website, you'll see a speaking page as well as a related page just for event professionals. Those hardworking, often stressed out colleagues who need to find speakers and other ideas for making in-person events memorable and valuable. I list three keynote and session topics, all based upon practical learnings from my new book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. And all of those talks are tailored to the themes of your meeting and the needs of your participants. You can email me directly at jim at jimcard.com. We can set up a time to talk by phone if you prefer that. My direct number is also on the website. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.